We'll be reading Acts 25. Often I would invite you to stand, but this one is a little lengthy, so you may want to stay seated for this one. You can read along with me or enjoy the story from God's word as you enjoy this beautiful day. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them, not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, 
so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ. Good morning. My name is Jeff Moger, and I'm an elder here at the barn. With Matt on sabbatical, I, like others, have opportunity to open the word from the pulpit this morning. But before I do that, I wanted to take a second and make you aware of something. You may know that the barn takes about 8% of the church budget and gives it to the missions committee, who then uses that money to support the various ministries and missionaries around the world. Today, One couple that we support are here with us, Robert and Becky Cooley. If they would just stand for a minute, I'd like to point them out to everyone. They serve the Lord faithfully in Peru. The barn is their home church, and they served here for many years before being called to Peru. I wanted to make sure that you were aware of the fact that they're here, and if you know them, say hi to them after the service. And if you don't know them, then introduce yourself to them after the service. I'm sure they'd love to to meet you. As you know, we are in the middle of a series on the book of Acts. We are focusing on the growth and spread of the early church. We call the series Asylum because the church is a safe and good place for people to escape the pressures of life. But we also recognize that from the outside, the church can be viewed as a group of people who may be a little unbalanced, or to use Will's term from two weeks ago, as being unhinged. Earlier in the summer, Elder Andrew Sharp took us through Acts 23, and last week, Pastor Steve McLean took us through Acts 24. So this week, we are in Acts 25, as Rachel read for us. These chapters are all part of a section where Paul is on trial. They read like history, a historical narrative. I know this because I teach history, and I read a lot of historical narrative. Paul is on trial, and in fact, Pastor McLean mentioned last week that Paul actually had five trials. Acts 25 is about the fourth and part one of the fifth trial, so maybe one and a half trials altogether. These trials are not the same as trials today or the trials we watch on TV. They are more scenes of accusation on one side and refutation on the other. This does not mean that Paul is not in trouble. This is not an intellectual debate between equal opposing sides. Paul is in peril, real peril of losing his life. And today I want to look at three ways at least that Paul is in peril. Paul is in prison. We know that Paul was being held in the Roman administrative capital, the city of Caesarea, on the Mediterranean Sea. He had been detained in Jerusalem, but was now been being held and been moved to Caesarea. He's being held by the Roman procurator, or the appointed governor. In chapter 24, that position was held by a man by the name of Felix, but now Festus, another man, has replaced him. 
Two years have gone by since Felix first took, took Paul. So as chapter 25 begins, Paul has been held for two years. And as we have read, he has been held without any real evidence. This can't happen in most Western societies today. In the Middle Ages, English society developed an idea which has come to be called habeas corpus, which is Latin for you shall have the body. The idea of habeas corpus is that the government cannot detain a person for more than a short time. I believe it's 24 hours in our country. Unless they can convince another court or a judge that they have evidence, like a body, that a crime was committed and that the person they are holding was involved in some way. This is not a trial, but it is one step in the process to keep governments from holding people without any evidence. Paul needed habeas corpus, but it wasn't coming for another 1,200 years or so. Today, you and I are glad to have this protection. So Paul sits in prison, but he is not idle. He was probably writing, and we know from Acts that he was being used by God to bring the gospel to the home of Felix and all the people that Paul had come across. God was using him just where he was. Paul was representing Jesus exactly where he was. Paul is famous for taking missionary journeys to bring the good news of Jesus to all corners of the known world. And he will continue to do that. But here, Paul is being a missionary in the place where he finds himself, in prison. You and I can do the same thing. We can be missionaries where we work, or play, or shop, or visit, or do whatever we do. As a teacher, it's, it's easy for me to have a sense that each day that God can use me in the lives of my students that I, that I work with. I do see myself as representing Jesus where I work. I hope you do as well. But do I represent Jesus well when I teach or when I play basketball? How well do I represent him when I go to the grocery store or when I drive? Paul represents Jesus while in prison. God allowed Paul to be in prison for reasons that we might guess at or even see worked out in the rest of the story. But Paul chooses to represent Jesus wherever he finds himself. So can we. I've known for several months that I was preaching today and what the topic was. I honestly don't know how pastors do this every week. This is, this is hard. I had a very hard time trying to figure out how to organize what I wanted to say about this scripture. Then I went to the Connecticut Department of Motor Vehicles. I went to the DMV to register a car for my youngest son. After only an hour and a half, I was done there and headed for my home in my son's newly registered car. Less than half a mile from the DMV in Wethersfield, the check engine light came on. I hate check engine lights. Seems like all my cars have them and they work. I hate being told what to do by a machine. I was bummed out and confused about what to do. So I pulled over and took out my phone. I made arrangements to have the car looked at, but I had over an hour to wait. I found a parking lot with shade and waited. I was upset. In fact, I was in turmoil. 
I had so many other things to do. So I prayed. I prayed for the situation. I prayed for the car. I prayed for the check engine light. And I started to think about the sermon for today. As I sat in my son's car in the parking lot at Wethersfield High School last Tuesday, the outline for the sermon started to come to me. I think it's possible that God used that check engine light to put me in a situation without distractions where I could hear from him about how to to organize this sermon. After struggling over this for several weeks, the outline came in about 20 minutes while sitting in that car. God often puts us into situations to teach us things that we might not learn in other more normal circumstances. Paul, sitting in prison, must have questioned why God allowed this to happen to him. Eventually, though, he chose to make the most of his time by representing Jesus to all he came across in that place, in prison. Paul and power. In the first century, power in the Holy Land was Rome. Rome controlled it all, but the people were not Roman. They were in many backgrounds and traditions, and the Romans, though dominant, generally chose to work with the locals wherever they ruled. As we have read, the new Roman governor, Festus, had arrived in the Roman capital city of Caesarea, but after only three days, he goes up to Jerusalem, the cultural capital, and immediately has to deal with the Jewish leaders, who, though it has been two years, have not forgotten about Paul. As a representative of the Roman power, of Roman power, Festus's primary job is to keep the peace so the Romans could benefit from ruling this land. Festus does not want to deal with religious contro- controversies in the Jewish city of Jerusalem. So in verse 5, he invites the Jewish leaders to come present their case against Paul in the more Roman city of Caesarea. Unwittingly, Festus has protected Paul from an assassination plot as the Jewish leaders were planning an ambush for Paul while he was being transferred to Jerusalem. By keeping Paul in Caesarea, Festus protects him. God uses the Romans to protect Paul. Paul is accused of three charges. They are being against the Jews, being against the temple, and being against Caesar. Festus does not understand the first two charges very clearly, but he he recognizes the great danger of the third. To be against Caesar is a problem for Paul, and therefore a problem for Festus. In dealing with power, Paul is very careful. He too recognizes that Festus has to be concerned with that third charge. How does a Christian today deal with the legal authorities under whose uh, authority we live? Not an easy question to answer, particularly depending upon who holds that authority. A 17th century Catholic bishop named Bossuet wrote a defense of divine right rule as he was educating a future king of France. One of his ideas was that royal power was absolute and needed to be, so the king could rule effectively. He warns that the only defense a subject has against the absolute power of the king is their innocence. 
The only defense a subject has against the absolute power of the king is their innocence. If you do nothing wrong, you have nothing to fear from an absolute king with absolute power. Paul is not outwardly against Caesar, and therefore his innocence protects him against that power. Paul did not have Bossuet in mind when he confidently defended his innocence against the false charges. In fact, Paul does more than defend himself. In verse 11, he takes a step of confidence in regard to Roman power. As a citizen of Rome, he has rights that other non-citizens do not have, and he takes advantage of them. In the face of the false charges, he states, I appeal to Caesar. Unwilling to be tried in Jerusalem, or even Caesarea, he requests a hearing before the highest judge in Rome, before Caesar. Paul is respecting power, he is obeying power, and now he is using it to his advantage. In verse 12, after conferring with his advisors, Festus obliges and promises to send Paul to Caesar. Paul is confident that he can appeal to power because of, his because of his innocence, and perhaps also because of his faith in the higher power on his side, a higher power that even Rome cannot overcome. Andrew stated last week, and Pastor McLean restated, and last week Pastor McLean restated, that God's purposes will not be thwarted by anything. Paul said virtually the same thing himself when he wrote in the 8th chapter of the book of Romans, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The power of Rome is real. But Jesus' power of love trumps it every time. Let us remember that. In the face of earthly powers, such as money or weapons or position, we have access to the same power that Paul relied on, a higher power. Let us also remember that our best defense against accusations is to be innocent in the first place. Paul and persecution. Luke, the author of Acts, Paul, and many biblical scholars suggest that Festus did not really think that Paul was guilty of anything too serious. He did not understand the Jewish concerns, but as for Paul being against Caesar, he was probably doubtful. But the Jewish leaders, like they had with Jesus and Pilate earlier, continued in their accusations. In agreeing to send Paul to Rome, Festus now had to send along an explanation of the case and the accusations against the prisoner. He was at a loss as to what to do. He looked for help, and in verse 13, it shows up in the form of King Agrippa. Agrippa was the Jewish king over some of the area that was under the ultimate authority of Festus, the Roman governor. Remember, the Romans worked with local leaders when it was convenient for them to do so. Festus's desire to placate the Jewish leadership now necessitated a closer look at the actual case in front of him. The persecution in this story is not coming from Rome, 
but from the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. They are the ones who are persecuting Paul. Festus hits at the heart of the disagreement when he tells Agrippa in verse 19 that the Jews and Paul disagree about, and I quote, a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. That's the disagreement. That's the argument. That is the gospel. If Jesus is alive after being dead, then life for the rest of us is forever changed. The Jews recognize this good news as a threat. They see it as a clear break from their Jewish traditions. Pastor McLean last week showed us how the good news of Jesus was in fact in continuity with the Jewish teaching of thousands of years. The Jewish leadership did not see it this way, so they chose to persecute Paul. Today, the gospel of Jesus is opposed in, in many cultures, institutions, and by individuals. This opposition to the spread of the gospel varies as to its location and time, but it is real, as real today as it was for Paul almost 2,000 years ago. Yet the good news spreads in the midst of this persecution. In 1949, when the communists took over in the People's Republic of China, most foreign missionaries left or were driven out. The four or five million Chinese Christians at that time were on their own. The communists actively attempted to root out Christianity in all its forms. They failed. When the country politically opened again to the world around 1979, Many Western church leaders were shocked to learn that in spite of this three-decade-long persecution, the church had grown at least fivefold and maybe even as high as tenfold growth. And in the 40 years since 1949, the church in China continues to grow. God's purposes will not be thwarted by opposition or persecution, no matter how powerful the source. King Agrippa now agrees to help Festus learn more about this case and exactly how to present it to Caesar when Paul is sent there. Chapter 25 ends with the beginning of the fifth trial. Chapter 26 will give Paul another chance to defend himself of the charges. And once again, the gospel will be presented to the most important and powerful people of the area and the time. Paul continues to represent his Lord wherever he goes, right in the face of opposition and persecution. As mentioned earlier, Paul is famous for taking missionary journeys. But as we have seen, Paul is a missionary in that he represents Jesus wherever he finds himself, near or far. In chapter 23, Paul was told by the Lord that he would testify about Jesus in Rome. With his appeal to Caesar in chapter 25, that prophecy is going to be fulfilled and Rome is going to pay for it. Festus will provide the means and the money for Paul's trip to Rome. God's plans will not be thwarted. In 1989, my wife Sarah and I had a plan. We were to go to China to teach English and to represent Jesus. We went. But after one month of being there, we had to fly to Hong Kong due to a medical emergency. 
That was not part of the plan. After being in Hong Kong for close to a month, we flew back to our assigned city and resumed our teaching for the next two years. We found out later that many of our students had expected that we would not return to China after being in Hong Kong, but instead go back to the United States. Actually, that never occurred to us. That wasn't the plan. In looking back on it now, one way of viewing this is that our medical emergency was an attempt to interrupt the plan. But as we know, God's plans will not be thwarted. This past spring, some members of the barn attended a local marriage conference on a Sunday afternoon and evening. We learned many things about how to strengthen our marriages. But what stuck most with me that day was the idea that in a marriage, the couple is, quote, on a mission together. On a mission together. The overall purpose of our marriage is so that together we can better serve and honor the Lord than we could as individuals. We are to serve the Lord first and each other second. This is also true of the church. The church is the bride of Christ. We come together with the plans of the Lord to serve others and to bring honor to his name. We are to serve the Lord first and each other second. We are on a mission together. We are part of God's plan. This past week, Robert Cooley, who I introduced to you, spoke with the missions committee and a few others and reminded us of the purpose of the church, that we are to be the hands and the feet for the work of our Lord now that he is with his heavenly Father. He made the point that, quote, the church is God's plan A for the serving and salvation of the world. And there is no plan B. I encourage each of us this morning to take time this week to figure out what part of plan A we can be involved with. What part of the mission is of interest to you? Do you want to work with children or prisoners? Do you want to support our missionaries? Do you desire to be part of the prayer team or the retreat team? Are you gifted in hospitality, evangelism, technology? Can you carry cushions up and down these difficult stairs? Are you really good at taking care of houses or property? We have a myriad of opportunities to serve the Lord through this congregation and throughout the greater community where we live. Where do you want to plug in? Where do you fit in to God's plan? Though Paul was in peril, he was on a mission, even when he was in prison. God used the power of the time to protect Paul and to further the plan. Paul overcame the persecution, and God's plans were not thwarted. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this continuing story of how you built your bride, your body, your church. Thank you for Paul and the critical role he played in your plan. Give each of us direction and boldness and opportunity to serve you in the same way wherever we are today. Amen.